Welcome to the Money Wise Women Show, brought to you by MoneyMorphosis.com. Are you ready to be inspired to upgrade your financial skills? Listen to feminine leaders sharing practical advice and valuable insights. Shift your money mindset, improve communication skills, and learn financial management tips. Although we do not provide investment advice, you can check out MoneyMorphosis.com. That's Money-M-O-R-P-H-O-S-I-S.com to find simple ways to boost your true wealth. Welcome, this is Crystal Arnold, your hostess of Money Wise Women and founder of Money Morphosis. It is a time of great transformation socially, economically, spiritually on on this planet, Uh, not only in America, but around the world. People are stepping up into leadership in their communities, creating uh, greater vitality and connection in, in ways that create true wealth for the generations to come. And it's also a time of so much collapse and so much destruction and, and so much pain and, and suffering that, that we see in the news daily, uh, ecosystem uh, loss of habitats and species and, and people suffering in a variety of ways. And yet from that fertile ground is emerging uh, great possibility, and I see our guest today, Adrian Marie Brown, as a beacon of um, what is possible with an emergent strategy, which is the name of um, her most recent book. And I am so uh, thrilled to have her on today. She is just an incredible uh, leader in her community. As I said, she's author of Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds. She's also the co-editor of Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction from Social Justice Movements. And her uh, newest book, which is coming out, is called Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. Yeah, we need more of that. I'm super excited to uh, hear more about that. And so she is an incredible writer, poet, social justice facilitator, pleasure activist, healer, and doula, and so much more. And she lives in Detroit. And uh, uh, Adrian, welcome. I would love to hear from you a little bit more about what you find most exciting about the work that you do. Mm, well, um, first, Crystal, thanks for the intro. Thanks for um, all of that love. It's always great to walk into a space where it's like, oh, you see me, <laughs> like you see my work, and, and it's touched you, so that's great. Um, thanks for having me here. And um, let's see. I think um, I feel like what's really exciting about my work or what has been feeling really exciting in this past few years has been um, I feel like I get to spend a lot of time talking very directly about honesty and getting to be in practices of honesty and that I didn't, um, you know, I didn't grow up thinking I wasn't being an honest person or living in an honest world. Um, I think everyone around me was, was trying to be honest or thought of ourselves as like honest, good people. Um, and I feel like as I've gotten older, what's come clear to me is that we do so much to socialize ourselves away from being honest um, we're so scared of telling each other the truth and the potential of hurting each other and um, and difference being mishandled, right? We live in a, in a I, I've mentioned this, but it feels like we live in a, in a war-hungry nation 
that is also conflict averse. And so we end up in these strange patterns where great acts of violence happen, which we distance ourselves from, and then small acts of dishonesty happen, which pile up into personalities and um, into ways of being that we maybe never meant to sign on for. So I feel like I get really excited when I, when I look at like how much of my work is actually just directly saying, are you being honest? Of course you're not being honest. Where could you be more honest? And um, whether that's as an organizer, whether that's as a human being um, who sees that something is wrong in the world, whether that's as someone who says that, you know, they, want to get over patriarchy, but continues to vote in ways that don't align with that. Um, all of those, all of those places. It's like, how can you get more honest? And then from that more honest place, um, be in better community, experience more pleasure in your life, be in right relationship with the planet, be in right relationship with your lovers and friends and family. There's so much that becomes possible on the other side of it. Mm, thank you. I I love how you walk your talk and like your uh book is is so honest and and uh and poetic in the way that you can both see systems dynamics and and as well as the interpersonal uh and interior uh, worlds and and how those interrelate and Aww. I think the honest yeah yeah I Aww. I feel like the honesty uh, is especially important when we're talking about finance and money because mm-hmm. there is so much shame that keeps us from t- talking authentically about not only our personal finances but you know how much of our um, collective money situation is shrouded in secrecy and shadowy dealings. And um, I would love to hear from you a little bit more about, um, you know, let's just dive right in. Like what, what (laughs) economic justice and, and how that um, weaves with social and racial justice right now. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I get excited about being at an intersection of many movements that are um, interconnected and that kind of, they stack against each other. And I think that we do a disservice when we try to pull them too far apart um, because they're so, um, it's like, oh, this is one stroke of the knife and we all get injured in it. And so, to me, economy is one of the um, cleanest lenses through which you can look at, oh, here's what this society really cares about. And um, I've always found that fascinating since I was really uh, young coming into organizing. But I was like, well, you know, people say, you know, organizations, right? Very early on, I knew that my work was to do healing and support for organizations that were trying to create difference in the world. Um, And some of that was, you know, as a leader inside the organizations, but most of it has been as a facilitator outside of organizations and helping people kind of move through tough moments. And so one of the earliest indicators to me of like, what is an organization actually up to was following like, well, what does it spend money on? Like who gets paid, who gets paid what, who doesn't get paid and um, how do people get treated in relationship to what they're getting paid? Is there a sense of transparency and honesty about how the budget is set and how the priorities are set? And um, all these decisions, you know, like, is there a commitment to, um, for instance, environmentalism um, as a spoken commitment? But then when you look at the finances, you know, money is going towards things that are are distinctly unsustainable, right? Or is there a a spoken commitment to equality um, or even equity? And then in how the budget flows out, there's massive disparities, you know, between those who are getting the most and those who are getting the least. And what I found was that um, both a, a budget or money is a way to look and be like, okay, what do these folks actually care about for real, for real? Um, but then also like this is becomes like this troubled zone where people cannot seem to speak in complete sentences. <laughs> so often like 
what's actually happening, what people are upset about, has a lot to do with the economics of the organization, the economic relationship between the organization and the community it's a part of, um, or something else in the realm of money. And, and then when people actually try to bring it up, it like it twists in the mouth and people can't seem to just say, you're making too much or you're not making enough or I'm not making enough or that your whole organization is sucking up all the resources in the field or, you know, things like that. And what ends up happening is um, the unspoken becomes toxic and then that toxic becomes a major barrier towards being able to do things differently. And once we're in that state, it's kind of like, okay, you know, it all becomes very personal. It's like, well, who has the best relationships and those people will find a way through and and they'll work it out. Um, But often those who have the largest class differentials, they won't be able to find peace with each other and they won't be able to then work together. And so we end up with organizations where it's a lot of people who are poor or a lot of people who are middle class or a lot of people who are wealthy working with each other and kind of understanding their own internal economic culture and not able to reach across the lines to something that would possibly lead to redistribution and an actual fair fair distribution of funds for all of us. So that's a long answer, but to me it feels like it's so interconnected and it's such a way to say this is what's actually happening um, on a political level. And then I'll, I'll say personally, um, you know, I grew up in what, what I experienced was a middle class, um, like the experience that it felt middle class. And when I look back at it, when I look back at the actual money, the actual debt, the actual people who were reliant on the income that my my father was making, he was in the military, um, I realized that it wasn't necessarily middle class in the way that that I've I've met other people, basically, who I was like, oh, you're middle class and my middle class are very different. Um, And and that's fine. But there's just there has not been a lot of like – a large sense of like a huge safety net or something in my life. And, um, but there's been enough of one to catch me and to keep me able to do justice work because justice work isn't really well paid um, for the most part. And I feel really grateful for what my parents did um, with what they knew. Like my mom grew up with more resources. My father grew up with less and they kind of cobbled together um, an understanding of economy that worked for the two of them and have been able to always have enough for us, even if there wasn't abundance. And then when there was abundance, they've been able to, you know, save and, and put stuff aside to help them get through the leaner times. And we've gone through the kind of full realm as a, as a family. So that's kind of the personal financial snapshot. Mm, thank you for sharing mm-hmm. that. I find it so great when when people can open up about their um, personal money journey um, as well, because mm-hmm. we so often don't hear about that and uh, have a lot of assumptions about other people and uh, a lot of judgments about people in other classes or situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Any of those things that land is like, oh, this division feels impenetrable. It's like there's an intention. If we can't see each other, we can't organize with each other. We can't get free from paradigms that that don't serve us. So, yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So, so what is possible as as we create a more collaborative economy that does have greater transparency and understanding and, and things like participatory budgeting where people do have authority over the organization or uh, the public money that's, uh, that's spent. And, and so I'd love to dream with you what is uh, possible in a collaborative economy. Oh. One of the most beautiful things that I've I've seen um, in my lifetime has been um, when people are able to have real, honest, transparent conversations around money across class, then there's a way that folks start to understand that, that it's not personal, um, that economy, it, it gets experienced in a very personal, like viscerally personal way. You feel like I'm not enough. I can't get enough. I can't 
hold on to enough and thus I can't take care of myself or I can't take care of the people that I love and there's no options and I'm bad because of that. And I see um, on the flip side of that people who are like, I'm, I have wealth, I have means, I must be better than other people because I have this money that I was born into and it gives me permission to look down on people but also to tell others how things should go to give orders, right? Um, I must be so great and I come from a, line, a lineage of greatness. <laughs> and uh, all of that I find very fascinating, right? It's just sort of like none of, neither of those things is true. Um, and so when people are able to start to have those conversations, it's like, oh, um, even though you don't, you didn't come into this world with a bunch of money, you're, you know, maybe you are highly resourceful or highly creative, or you have figured out a way in collaboration with other people of making your ends stretch and stretch until they actually did meet the needs of your community. Um, and conversely, you know, I've seen people who grew up with a lot of financial privilege um, but then when they're able to speak very honestly, they can talk about the deep isolation that often comes, um, the deep pressure when you uh, somehow believe that you're supposed to be responsible for, um, for society and for humanity in a way that doesn't actually make sense given your experience, right? So then you, the imposter syndrome, the fraud, the trauma, the fighting over money, um, the, um, the pain of it all, right? The pain of feeling that you are disconnected from something but not knowing what it is, um, which I think that my experience of a lot of wealthy people is that. It's just sort of like I want community. I'm longing for something. I don't really know what it would look like. Um, but And so then I'm, I'm appropriating different things, trying to find something that will fill up the void that money inevitably leaves. Like it, it fills some things and it leaves some other things un, un, unattended to. So the thing that, that to me that's the first piece of what becomes available is we start to realize like money is not actually us and it's not actually personal. It's basic, you know, it's just a very basic, simple way of exchanging, um, exchanging without having to always have the goods there, right? And if we depersonalize it in that way, then we can start to liberate it, right? To me, I get really excited talking about reparations and thinking about redistribution and thinking about what, would it, what does it actually take for people to say the needs of the many um, matter and that we actually have abundance and we could meet all the needs. And, and it wouldn't mean that, um, that we have to give up the luxurious experiences. I think that when luxurious experiences are shared, they are just as powerful and they can be just as incredible. And I don't mean shared like we all go, you know, 30 to a hot tub every time. I mean more like, um, you know, there is a collective community hot tub and a lot of people put into it and share maintenance of it and then people get to take turns using it and having a delightful experience there, right? Um, and hot tubs are important to me. <laughs> so it's always one of the first places I go to when I think about, what were experiences of luxury that I had? And I was like, oh, like I remember the first time I sat in a hot tub and I was like, oh, I get why it's so hard to end capitalism. <laughs> I get why even people who deeply, deeply agree that something's got to change and how our economy um, is practiced will hold on to their own privileges rather than to you know, form into some shape of collectivism. Um, so that that's one of the visions I have for it, is like people really starting to think about a redistribution of what we have towards abundance. Mm. Yeah, and I hear you speaking to this uh, stewardship of the commons and our ability okay. to access something becoming more valuable than the actual ownership of it. We've been through such a material-focused acquisition and hoarding of, of things that we're, I feel like, entering a new area, era where access and uh is uh, also very important and uh, opportunities to build those divides a across uh, seeming differences. And, you know, yeah, I, I see it. Like I think, it, it, oh, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was going to say there's a great um, 
short, uh, great novel, sci-fi novel, uh, called Woman on the Edge of Time. Have you read that? No. No? It's Marge Piercy, and it's a visionary story um, that involves time travel, and the woman is jumping ahead um, to the future and seeing some of the stuff in the future. And one of the things that they figured out in the future is that everyone owns everything, and particularly everyone owns art. Um, and so an example is like instead of like a Picasso sitting in one person's home forever, it moves from place to place. And so you might have the Picasso in your home for a year, and then it moves on, and then someone else has the Picasso, but you have something else amazing. And I remember that idea of like, oh, what does it mean for everyone to actually own everything or no one to own anything, which in some ways feels more to me the reality. And that's the reality that climate, climate crisis and climate displacement gives us. It's like you, you don't own anything that you can't carry with you under a crisis. Um, all of it is borrowed. <laughs> you know, you may have accumulated it. Um, but if it can be taken out by a storm, it's not really yours, right? If it can be taken out by um, an eco- economic crash, it's not really yours. And eventually we all die, and none of it's really ours. So that shift towards, like, I don't own this. I have this in this moment. I'm enjoying this in this moment. How do I stop becoming a hoarder or becoming a clinger um, and actually just be with the moment? Mm. We had this incredible experience uh, a couple of weeks ago. We did an offers and needs market. Uh, I work with the Post Growth Institute, and we had about 80 people in our local Grange Hall on a Sunday night for two hours, and uh, they were sitting in small tables of eight just uh, first connecting on uh, saying their different offers to each other. And we had wealthy contributors uh, and and community members and, and then a, at least two homeless people who also shared in front of the whole group. And uh, mm-hmm. one of those women had a three-month-old baby with her and this, this really uh, tough story that she shared. But they were coming together as equals across the table and, and starting with their assets that that they all had something to offer and then moving into, you know, being able to share their needs and not only at the small tables, but we let some people come and share their needs to the whole group. And there was mm-hmm. like this underlying generosity that people want to connect face to face and, and give and be able to offer advice and, and really have that experience of the marketplace as a place where we come to care for one another and I feel like just building these community connections creates resilience. It also, um, you know, uh, kind of is is um, antidote to the poverty that often is created by separation, you know, separation from each other, separation from the earth itself, separation from spirit. And so I'm curious uh, your thoughts on on why, you know, offers a needs market um, may be effective at, at creating a more collaborative economy. Mm-hmm. I mean, <clears throat> I think that there's so much that goes unspoken. Um, the folks, you know, are like, oh, I have this need and I don't ask for it. And I think a lot of that gets trained in, right? Like if you're in a community where you've been socialized to have to experience scarcity, um, even though it's not necessarily a true scarcity, it's a politically constructed scarcity, you know, just like race is a political construct. Um, uh, the way that class plays out is often intentionally like a political construct. And this has always been one of my, my, um, challenges with uh, charity, right, is I'm always like, oh, you know, like, I, you know, when I first came across charity, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, give, give people something, <laughs> right, um, and then I was just like, oh, no, you know, that charity really upholds the power dynamics that some people have and some people don't, and that can only ever flow one way, and the people who have will always keep what they have, right, so I love the offers and needs as a structure, and it's it feels in some ways like the maybe tapping into the oldest structures uh, that by which people have 
um, exchange goods and services and care and food, you know, um, is this thing of, you know, I have this and I need this. And it's like something so ancient in the system. And so it's like really exciting to be like, oh, what does it look like to practice that? Um, and I think that's really useful. And then I think, you know, the, the place to me to always watch out for is like how to how to never create like a false um, equity, it, you know, like it, so it's like, oh, how do we tune into like in the example you gave, it's like, oh, like if someone is homeless and someone else is very, very wealthy, then then really how do you tune into the authentic connection between these two people that really acknowledges where they are and really acknowledges that they both have things to give, but the needs are really different. And then the needs are social, uh, like socially constructed. So it sounds really cool. You know, it sounds like that's what y'all were up to, right? It was like people being able to be seen as whole people um, and be able to share the hardness of their real stories, um, knowing that not everyone in the room shares that real story, but everyone in the room can care. And probably a lot of the people in the room can actually help in material ways. And I love anything that moves people towards helping each other in material ways, whether that material is, um, financial or whether that material is uh, time. You know, I think time is like the most, in some ways, really the most valuable substance that we can give to each other. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to give you the time and attention to then offer you care, to hear that you need care. I'm going to give you my time to support you through grieving processes. I'm going to give you my time and attention to support you through a conflict with your partner so that it doesn't you into domestic abuse, you know, um, I'm going to give time and attention. I think to me, that huge gift that we can give each other is like, I'm here, I'm with you. I see you. You're not going to suffer, um, out of sight, out of mind of me. Like you can't escape my attention and my care and my love. It's here. Um, I think that's something so powerful and, and each community, I love the locality of what you shared also, but it's like, we're all here. We're sharing this space. We're sharing this place. Um, how do we care for each other inside of it? Yes, yeah, and and what I've seen time and time again facilitating these events is the incredible wealth that's already in our communities that uh, when we make it visible, we feel more resourced. Our nervous system can relax a little. We don't feel so isolated and and that um, false sense of security that that money can give people that that really people are deep down desiring this belonging that comes from serving their community from being seen and heard and expressing their gifts and uh, so there is this incredible richness uh, that's that's revealed through the process I agree I agree and I think it's um I love the idea, too, of being able to share with each other in ways that unveil, unveil the, the lineage of how we got to where we are. Um, so uh, what I mean by that is, like, when you start to be able to say, like, here's what I am now, here's how I am now, here's what I need now, um, you know, that, that's one level of the sharing that we need. And then I think something beautiful that happens in community is over time you start to be like, oh, how did I get to be this way? <laughs> you know, how did you get to be the way you are? How did we end up in these particular social locations? Is there room to move around? Is there room to shift inside of these locations? And that to me is where vision enters the room and creativity enters the room. Um, I got to be a part of a group, uh, go and give a speech to a group called Resource Generation. And they do this beautiful practice where people tell their money stories. They go around a big circle and everyone has to say, you know, kind of here's what I have in the world and here's where it came from. And the community that then gets built when people are just really honest, like, you know, most money comes from, labor or land and if it's not your labor and your land then it usually comes from exploitation in some some way and so when people start to get honest about that um, and then be like well who who was exploited how do we start to rebalance these decks again it starts to really depersonalize and it's like well we're in a community that that 
long ago, someone imagined that the way to create community security was to hoard, to gather, to take too much, and to create a personal abundance at the expense of other people. And now we can choose something different. Like when we see that lineage, we can be like, oh, well, that's not working, right? Like that just perpetuates disparity. So let's try something else. Like let's understand that lineage and then understand that like all of this is ours. What do we want to do with it? And that to me, that's where I start to get lit up. Yeah, yeah, they are doing such amazing work and uh, so great to to bring that um, that personal and and help people, uh, yeah, really focus on on how they want to align their values with their resources. Yeah. Hmm. I see you. I know that you're. Um, be really want to see Detroit as this training hub for emergent strategy and and we'll be launching a program mm. to train facilitators and just wanted to hear a little bit more about that and why you feel like um, facilitation is such a valuable skill in today's world. Oh, yay. Um, well, uh, I've been facilitating for basically my whole adult life. Um, I was probably facilitating before that, but I just didn't know that there was a thing (laughs) called facilitation. Um, But intentionally I've been doing it as an adult and I really see it as creating ease for humans who are trying to be in relationship with each other and helping to heal some of the separation um, that keeps us apart from each other. I'm particularly interested in how we have more depth and care and love for each other and actually get closer to each other when there's difference um, and when there's tension or conflict. How do we use that to grow closer rather than, you know, there's tension, conflict, and we split further and further apart. We fragment more and more. So, I think that facilitation is something that everyone can build a skill around. And I think there's some people who like it's in, it's in our nature, you know, it's like part of the gift that we're on the planet to bring. So part of what I've been trying to figure out is how to find those people who have some natural amount of gift and bring them together and kind of play and share and learn, like how can we best share the gift we have? Um, And then to give people some framework for it, so that even if it's like, okay, I'm not actually, you know, facilitation is not my nature, but I can still learn some tools for how to be better when I'm in community with other people. And I can learn some tools for how to guide conversations and how to help people hear each other. And I feel, you know, almost at an evangelical level <laughs> that if more people had this skill, we would um, end up in a society where we were not regularly driven to violent war violent conflict, um, violent attempts at creating safety, violent attempts at creating uh, belonging. There's so much of what's happening when people are acting out in violence is that they're trying to protect something. And it's just a way that that only perpetuates more harm. So uh, I'm a big fan of it. And then in Detroit this past year, I did three trainings. And they were really big. Each one of them was um, uh, over, uh, like a 60 to 80 people. And I was just in a lot of experimentation of like how to teach this and how can it be taught in a way that goes beyond me. Um, and I learned a ton. And so based off of what I learned, next year I'll be rolling out um, a whole bunch of different options. And Detroit is a really interesting location to me because of all the stuff we've been talking about, you know, it's a city that had um, a moment where it seemed like all the capitalism was working, all of the economic experiments were working and the auto industry was popping and everyone had a big car and a Sunday afternoon to drive around. And, you know, it just felt like the resources were going to just always be flowing here. And then the economy shifted and the jobs moved to places where they, um, you know, where the companies could, produce their product for cheaper, right? And the, the economy collapsed in Detroit. And I showed up a couple decades after that. And 
So the people that I got to learn from here are the ones who figure out creative solutions for staying in right relationship with each other, learning new ways, like, or remembering. I think of that, like, re-indigenization and remembering, like, how do I get in right relationship to the place that I'm in? Um, how do I understand, like, who are the first people of this place and where are they now? And can I still be in right relationship to them here? Um, so to me, there's, there's like a lot of opportunity, a lot of, um, brilliance in this city, um, and the fact that it still exists. Yeah. Um, so to me, I'm like, this is a place where I want people to come to learn about being in right relationship with change and how to deepen community under the pressures of changing economy. Um, there's some great teachers living and in the soil here. Hmm. Love it. Love all the value that you're bringing to your uh, your community and, and really amplifying the gifts of people who are ready to facilitate transformation. And uh, I've found as a facilitator that the group field is just so incredible at both amplifying our intentions and also healing uh-huh. and ways that people can have awakening and realizations and, and step out of their ordinary life and feel comfortable uh-huh. enough to open up to a new way of being together. Oh, yeah. I mean, it feels like it can be so, um, you know, there's times when you really need to borrow on other people's gifts. You know, you might need to borrow on someone else's strength or borrow on someone else's um, bravery. And it helps so much to be in groups and to have that be explicit. Like, we are going to drive each other and support each other and lift each other up and borrow from each other until we have all the things that we need in order to change and heal and grow. And that feels important to me. And then it also feels always important to me to be like, oh, and how do we, you know, any group of people be in right relationship to wherever we are? And, you know, for me, Emergent Strategy was learned in Detroit. You know, I learned it reading here. I learned it from watching the organizers here. I learned it from listening to organizers tell the story of how they made it through that time and juxtaposing that with sci-fi and juxtaposing that with reading about emergence and science and complex sciences and fractals, like all this stuff was happening simultaneously. And so my economic strategy was actually like, bring it home to Detroit. So people want to fly me all over the place now, (laughs) you know, like every day I have multiple requests of people saying, come here, come here, come here. Um, And, you know, I'm like, oh, then we go to those places and a bunch of money gets spent to do trainings in all these other places. And how can I be a responsible Detroiter? Well, one of the ways has been this strategy of saying, you know, as as much as possible when I'm offering something in the world, I want to offer it here so that people come to Detroit and they have to spend money here. (laughs) You know, they're going to get their hotels here. We're going to rent a space here. We're going to hire local caterers. Um, often I've created like a network of hosts in the city that can get paid kind of like, not like an Airbnb, but just like, you know, community support um, can get paid to host people in their home during these events. So then you're also getting the experience of staying with actual Detroiters who are creating change in real time. So all of that to me is like my attempt at a community economic strategy. That's like, how do I, how do I create something that, as it grows, continues to nurture this place that I love so much. Again, you're walking your talk. I love it. That's <laughs> brilliant. Trying, you know? I'm trying. Uh-huh. Um, wow. So so much uh wisdom. Thank you for, for sharing that. I uh we're gonna take a quick break here and then when we okay. come back let's hear a little bit more about uh the pleasure activism book and and all of that. And we'll be back in just a minute. Do you want to have body confidence and to look in the mirror and to love what you see? My name is Marla Mervis Hartman, and I'm the creator of Love Your Body, Love Yourself and The Pleasure Plan. And if you are ready to let go of dieting, overeating, undereating, restricting, body shaming, and comparing yourself to others, then I invite you to check out thepleasureplan.org, where I can teach you how to use pleasure as a way to create a healthy relationship with your body and your food. Are you ready to enjoy greater financial freedom? 
Perhaps you're like Emily, a creative entrepreneur who wants to increase her income to provide for her family. Using the free video training found at discoveryourtruewealth.com, she learned the secrets to accessing hidden resources and creating lasting wealth. Emily learned a persuasive negotiation technique to bring in more money with her top clients. She boosted her credit score and opened new financial doors while reducing expenses. And she took specific steps to strengthen her existing relationships and create a safety net for her business. With the Discover Your True Wealth training, thousands of women have improved their bank balances and secured their family's future. With this free video course, you'll transform beliefs, behaviors, and skills with money. Take charge of your financial situation with the training found at discoveryourtruewealth.com. Welcome back. We are here with Adrienne Marie Brown sharing some good strategies for community organizing, facilitation, and, uh, you know, a more collaborative, just economy and society. And her newest book coming out in February is Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. I am so curious about that and uh, wondering if you could tell us more. Yes, um, (laughs) I am so excited about this book. It's been so fun to create. Um, It's basically um, born out of, I'm a pleasure activist in my heart. Like as long as I can remember, I have been in pursuit of pleasure. I love to feel good. I love um, going to the spa. I love getting massages. I love doing like cleanses and face masks and I love sex, I love getting high, I love all these experiences of pleasure, and um, part of my life has been figuring out how do I get in right relationship with these things so that they don't control my life but enhance my life, and then as I've gotten older, I realized like I wanted to close the gap between the experiences I was having of pleasure and the experiences I was having of justice and liberation work, and I kept, uh, I found myself giving a talk uh, kind of early in my organizing career where I talked about what it's like when you're meeting someone who's trying to create change in the world and how often it's like you're having a conversation with someone and they're like, I am so tired and so burnt out and the world's going to hell and like, you know, these are all the million complaints that I can, you know, articulate and here's the deconstruction of everything around me. Do you want to join me? <laughs> And I would be like, no, (laughs) you know, like that sounds horrible. Like if I am going about my life in a state of numbness, which I think our economy is actually structured to support that numbness, you know, just like just spend, 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 you're never satisfied. There's always a little something else you need to be perfect or beautiful or right or whatever, that numbing down. Like if you're in that numbness and someone comes at you with that pitch of horror, um, I'm like, why would anyone want to do that? So for me, I've been like, well, how do I make movement space feel really good to be a part of? And not in a glossy way, right? Like not denying, like there's some struggle, there's differences, but it's like there's also struggles and differences in relationships. And we still find ways to make them feel feel good and feel like there's more positive in it. There's more strength in it. There's some, you know, that that's what weighs out over the long haul. It's like, yeah, I want to be in this. I want to do this. It fucking feels good, right? So that's the kind of exploration that's at the heart of the book is how how can we make justice and liberation the most pleasurable activities that we're engaged in as a species? And the other piece of it feels tied into my own sense of liberation, which is as a multiracial black woman, as a fat woman, as a woman with glasses, as a queer woman, what I've recognized is my pleasure is a direct measure of how liberated I have gotten from systems of oppression. So if I'm, if I'm born into a situation where people are like, you're not a whole human being, you're here to be in service to me in some way, I find you inferior to me in some way, or whatever it is, um, that, that's hard to find your pleasure inside of, right? It's like, well, I don't even deserve to be here. Like, my whole life should just be labor, 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 trying to earn my place on this planet or 
clean someone else's house or just do something for someone else the whole life. And it's like, oh, how do I instead find honor, honor in the cleaning of someone's house, honor in whatever work it is I'm called to do? How do I get to feel whole inside of whatever I get to do? How do I get to feel free inside of whatever I get to do? And so to me, whenever I feel pleasure, I'm like, oh, this is pleasure that I'm experiencing for myself, but also on behalf of all the long lineage of my ancestors who were denied this pleasure and who were made to labor in unjust ways and who were made to, um, you know, be displaced from their land and from their home and all these other things. So it works on those two levels. And the book itself is like, it kind of goes back and forth between like sex and squirting and drugs and fun and then some really deep dives into like, you know, how does this connect to childhood sexual trauma? How does this connect to cancer? How does this connect to, you know, sex work and capitalism? How does this connect to um, transitioning from one gender to another? How does this, how does this connect to the real lives we're living right now? And it's half my voice, half the voices of all these other people that I've woven into um, a, hopefully a coherent, um, a coherent conversation around pleasure in this moment and how to bring justice and liberation and into all of it. Wow. Sounds fantastic. Just what we Thank need you. now. <laughs> yeah. To enliven people and, and claim that healthy way of being turned on by life. I, yeah. it, it makes me yeah. think of the term vocational arousal. Like, can uh-huh. we get more people who are turned on by their service in the world and not just doing it for the money at these soul numbing uh, jobs? And, and how can we create this vitality through honoring pleasure and the feminine life force yeah. too, whether you're a man or a woman, there's been so much fear of pleasure of the way that religion shuts it down and, and the ways mm-hmm. that uh, the masculine patriarchy often tries to control yeah. that unbridled feminine pleasure. Yeah. I mean, I see that awakening in so many people right now. And then I also think we're in this exciting challenging moment this the me too moment has been so powerful for all these conversations because it's like oh there's so many people and you know i meet women i meet men i meet trans people i meet non-binary people who are like i really am not experiencing the pleasure that i want to experience um, and i don't even know how to have the conversations i need to have i don't know how to use my voice i don't know how to ask for something i don't know how to receive a no right and so so many of these stories that come out where people are like um, you know, someone says, you caused me great harm here. And the response is, I had no idea. You know, I've been really trying to interrogate, like, well, what's going on? Like, are men just completely clueless or, you know, people who are masculine completely clueless about causing harm? Um, and, and what I'm finding is, um, and my, one of my great teachers, I, I would call her a teacher at this point, Mariam Kaba, um, Miriam Kaba, she talks about this, that, like, nobody's um, – Nobody's out here trying to cause harm, and all of us cause harm. And so trying to talk about pleasure, it includes a conversation around the fact that, like, yeah, we all bumble. We all make mistakes. We all say things that accidentally hurt someone. Um, We all cross lines at different points in our lives. And there's a quote from Daniel Sered, who does a bunch of restorative justice and transformative justice work, and she says no one's first experience of violence is the first time they cause harm. It's you get hurt somewhere along the way and then you pick that up and that snowballs into your future relationships and future experiences. So a lot of what I'm trying to do with this book is also course correct in this Me Too era that it's like almost all of us have been harmed. A lot of us have actually caused harm. And how do we humble ourselves to like, this is a society we're in right now. And if we want it to be different, we have to say it, name it, and begin to practice other things. We have to begin to practice saying no really loudly. We have to practice hearing no, receiving it, and not pouting or pushing past it or throwing a fit, but actually just being like, oh, you don't want this. You don't want this with me right now. Okay, right? Um, And not pitching or selling or anything else, right? We have to practice knowing what our own pleasure feels like. Um, So this is like the delicious homework I try to give everyone is like, 
to get much more in touch with your own pleasure. Like, do you know if you were on a deserted island for the rest of your life, how would you have your orgasms? How would you experience pleasure? Like, what would be your delights? What are the things that you have access to with just your own mind and your own body? Um, Get into yourself. Like, get really turned on by yourself. And I find that when people are aroused by their selves, then it's so much easier to notice that the world is full of wonder and the world is full of interesting things that will turn you on. And that includes the work that you do. It includes the people that you spend your time with. People waste so much time with folks who are boring the living daylights out of them because they don't just know how to say, no, this is not, this connection is not working for me. It's not interesting to me. It's not nourishing me. It's not, it's not great for me. I'm not really enjoying it. And Audre Lorde is one of the teachers that I turn to and reference for this book. And she has an essay called The Uses of the Erotic, which you can find online. You can read it. I'm reprinting it in the book as well. And she talks about once you've really experienced that erotic whole body aliveness, it's impossible to settle for suffering. And I just love that because I feel like that's accessible no matter what your class background is, that there's a way that you can say, I can still tap in even now to my whole body, my full aliveness, and you can't convince me that I deserve less than this. Not, not me, not now. I know better, right? And I want everyone to feel that. Mm. Thank you for this bold call to action to feel more, to become uh-huh. more in touch with our somatic wisdom. It's so uh-huh. important to integrate that with our minds and spirits and I feel like this is also connected with our the power of grief and our ability to feel what is most precious to us and and in in the moment of gratitude for for what is for holding my dear child and and knowing that that one day they'll be gone and that that transient nature of life and mm-hmm. there was a, a great sociologist who um who said that this belonging that's created when we grieve together and celebrate together he called this a collective effervescence and ah oh. oh, i i would love to hear your thoughts on on the power of grief and why it's important today mhm mhm um I had uh, someone who did body work for me a few years ago. And um, as he was doing the body work, I started crying. I was grieving at that point for my grandfather. And the body worker said to me, you know, grief is gratitude. Grief is gratitude. And just kept repeating it. Like that was the message that my grandfather wanted me to receive. And a little while later, like a month later, the body worker took his own life and that statement, that sharing of grief is gratitude became relevant in a different way and it became something I could offer back to the community of people that, that loved him. Um, and it stuck with me. And so I'm in a period of grief right now um, and I'm in a huge community that is grieving together. We just lost our friend, Alana David Cyril, who um, was a pleasure activist in her own right. She's actually in the book talking about pleasure after cancer, after cancer diagnosis. She got diagnosed with metastatic um, gastroesophageal cancer a couple years ago and, um, and lived and fought and innovated and loved and kept turning towards pleasure in it. And around her, a community formed that the heart of it is her beloved um, partner, Malkia, and Malkia um, called in a huge number of us to just be in daily contact with each other and with Alana and with, in common spiritual practices with each other and, uh, you know, sharing, like, we made a Facebook page where we were sharing pictures of dogs and cats and anything that we thought would make Alana laugh. She was a, a comedian with a fantastic sense of humor. Um, and then when she passed, um, there was this huge uh, feeling and there continues to be this huge feeling of togetherness. Like we all loved this person. We all loved this person. We did everything we could to make um, every day that she had here as good as it could be and to fight for her to have as many days as possible. 
um, and we're in it together. And it feels like one of the most precious gifts of my life to have been invited to be a part of that community and to be invited to be a part of her, her living and dying process. Um, and I think that we are in a state now, this is one of my obsessions. I've written a whole novel around grief. I think about grief all the time and like how much time does grief actually need and how do we adjust to, um, how do we understand that grief is the, the practice of the gratitude for the gift that we have been given, whether it is a gift of love or a gift of togetherness or the gift of the miracle of life. Um, I think that we are given limited lives on purpose. I think that it's a spiritual container. Um, I think that if life just went on and on and on forever, it would be really hard to um, understand the preciousness of it, which is not to say that life would be less precious. But I think that given how we as a species orient to time, um, I think that we have a hard time <laughs> holding on to preciousness. And so I get really um, humbled by the brilliance of that time limit um, and then what we do with each other inside that time limit to be like, oh, this person really mattered. Here's how we can continue to carry them. Here's how we let them now be a part of each of us. Here's how we um, feel rage if the life is too short or if the life is too hard. And here's how we feel celebration um, for the brilliance that came from that particular life that could have come from no other life. And I, I think the more we learn to grieve together, the more we truly um, have interdependence. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Thank you for sharing uh, that that story and experience. And I realize so many people are um, not sure how to handle this ongoing grief. There's been some more attention about climate grief and looking at, you know, cultures, indigenous cultures who are losing their, you know, ability to fish and, and things they have done for generations because of climate change. And then we also have economic grief where 2008, how many people lost their retirement accounts in in the financial crash? How many people have bankruptcies and, you know, all all kinds of financial loss that often is not processed or grieved. And so I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to say about those kind of uh, bigger senses of grief. Yeah, I mean, I will say um, I've been going through some of that myself this year. Of um, I was a war tax resistor for 13 years and um, was from, a, you know, I was sort of coming into my adulthood right around when the, um, like, let's say I graduated from well, I didn't quite graduate from college. I kind of graduated. You know, I finished going to school <laughs> in 2000. And then 9-11 happened in 2001. And I was, I was in my first job. And, um, and I watched the towers fall. And I could not bring myself to support in any way um, bombing or, or bringing that kind of harm to another human being, another you know, I, I really imagined it. It's like, oh, my gosh, there's some 20-year-old person in Afghanistan who has nothing to do with any of this shit. Um, and I, I can't be a part of, of hurting them, harming them, taking their life. I can't do it. And so I became a war tax resistor. And it was really um, a lesson, a learning. You know, each year, each way that I did it was really different. Um, but I, I was a war tax resistor for long enough that the IRS noticed (laughs) and they were like, hold on. And this year they put um, a levy on me. They froze all the money that could possibly come to me. They emptied my bank account um, of what was in there. They, you know, put me, put, put, you know, kind of took my head, smashed me down to the floor and said, you're going to stay here until you um, comply. Do you comply? Do you comply? You know? And, um, it was such a humbling experience, and I did have to go through 
grief over the money that was lost and grief over the ideological stance that I could no longer hold because um, the, you know, I was just like, oh, as I'm walking through this process, like I'm not going to be able to do this. I cannot continue to not pay the IRS unless I want to go to jail right now. Like that's the other option. And that doesn't feel like the right move um, for how I'm supposed to offer my gifts. You know, if I have a choice, that doesn't feel like the choice I'm going to make. And so then I have to make this other one, which is to get into a payment plan. And so the grief of that, just being like, wow, if there's, you know, any government that would be the worst possible administration to be having to make these payments under, this is probably it. And so there's just this grief of being like, wow, this is, this is the circumstances that I got myself into. Um, and I can say that one of the great teachers of it for me has been money means something very different to me now than it did at the beginning of this year. Um, I had to lean into so many people in my community. Um, I had to practice interdependence for real. Like I had to tell people like, I don't have enough to do what we said we were going to do here. I don't have enough to meet my basic needs and I'm going to need some help. And, you know, I've always made enough money like that. I pride myself on, like, I've got, I've got me, you know, you get you, I've got me. And um, so to be in a place where I was like, oh, I'm the person now, you know, and I'd helped a lot of people over the years, which um, was some good, you know, financial karma, like people were willing to be generous with me. Um, And I don't know, there's just a way that I let go of money in a way that I've never done before, like money as money, like having tons of it. Um, is my relationship to it has shifted so deeply. And I feel like, oh, I know I'm good with it. I'm also really good without it. Um, you know, I know how to make it, and I also know how to let it go. And I know that it's not mine in a different way than I've ever known before. Like, um, I know what is mine, my spirit, my labor, the things that are truly mine cannot be taken by a government or any administration or anyone else. And then the things that are not mine, it becomes easy to let go of. Um, and that, that feels like a big lesson from this year. And grief is what taught me that lesson. Like I, I think grief is, you know, the major reason it's here is to teach us how to let go. And one of the things I've been connecting in, in since Alana's death has been that there's a lot that's happening in this time period that we're going to actually have to let go of, like as a species, we're going to have to let go of some things that we have gotten used to, um, because of the climate shifting because of economies crashing, because of the rise of more fascist right-wing governments that have um, really scary economic ideas. There's a lot of things that we're just going to have to be like, we have to change. And I feel more capable of that change because I've gotten to experience so much grief in my life. Whoa. Oh, wow. What an incredible story. I'm just feeling that liberation with your relationship with money that came from ironically this systemic oppression from the authority demanding that you you know uh, give up your money and and the resulting codependence on on others in a new way and and yet it sounds like you really emerged from that uh, with with a kind of liberated perspective on money Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that interdependence is a great medicine. And I think that because of how capitalism is structured, if you don't have to practice it, most of us won't, (laughs) you know, like if you can keep your finances like really clean and separate and away from other people and you can like meet your needs and like, you know, look like you've got it all together, like most of us will choose that option every time. So I do think there's something really um, powerful that comes from being like, oh, I'm in a situation where I don't have it. And, you know, I remember reading a piece around folks after the Madoff um, stuff, you know, where they were like, I I didn't only think I was good. I thought I was rich and I thought I was rich and I was taken care of for life. And the experience of grief with that to me is like, oh, that that kind of is the ultimate American grief that we need to feel at this moment is that there's a lot of people who think, oh, I'm good, like I'm safe and I'm good for life and everything is fine. And to me, to feel that way in this country at this moment is a sign of privilege. And it's a sign that you're not actually tuned in to what's happening to the majority of people in the country. 
um, you've managed to find a pocket and you're pretending that that pocket is normal for everyone else, right? And so I get really, um, you know, I feel for people where I'm just like, the more that you can put yourself in direct relationship to what's happening now, say, oh, you know, like the majority of people don't feel safe. The majority of people don't have that financial stability. The majority of people don't necessarily know that they're going to be able to keep their water on in the summer or their heat on in the winter. These are like real material conditional things. And as long as the majority of people don't have that, no one actually has stability or safety. And, uh, and to me, I'm like, oh, and interdependence is on the other side of all that. It's on the other side of recognizing like, there's not individual safety in this world. That's not how our species is constructed. If you have and someone else doesn't have, they're going to come get it. And they're in the right, right, I think, righteous act to do so. You know, um, to me, redistribution is a way to lead, in, lead ourselves towards interdependence rather than having interdependence thrust upon us. And I say, like, go ahead and make the turn. <laughs> you know, it's better this way. Mm. So if listeners are turned on by what you've shared today, uh, could you okay. tell us a little bit more how people can find out more, maybe your website and any other yeah. information? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I do a podcast with my sister called How to Survive the End of the World. And that's one place that you can find us. You can look up Into the World Show on Twitter and Instagram um, and then you can look me up on Instagram. Instagram is my fave. I love posting things there. And I try very intentionally to put positivity out into the world through social media. And that's what I want to put my attention on and other people's attention on. So if you're looking for a place where it's like pleasure, joy, goodness, then my social media, my Instagram is a place for that. Um, and then net is my website. It's about to be overhauled, but you can get the basic information there and read some of my writing. Um, and then the books, obviously, are a great way to to go further with the work. Wow. Well, um, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today. And I'd love thank to hear... Thank you for hear. having me. Yeah, it's been such a delightful conversation. Just curious if you have uh, any final thoughts you'd like to share. No, I'm really just grateful to have been with y'all for this time. I hope that it was useful to you for your miraculous life, that it felt like a good use of your precious time. And um, I hope they have a good day. <laughs> mm. Wow. So inspired, so turned on by the possibilities of more and more people awakening to their pleasure through your message, Adrian, and through your upcoming book and just feel like it's such a time where the feminine force is rising and supporting us to fulfill our purpose and share our unique genius and really contribute to a more vibrant, healthy, just economy and world that we can all enjoy more. So thank you for bringing your poetry, your incredible spirit and uh, mind into the field today and sharing that with us. It was a true delight. For listening. If you like what you heard, the biggest compliment you can give us is to subscribe to the show and rate and review our podcast at iTunes. Be sure to visit www.moneymorphosis.com. That's money-m-o-r-p-h-o-s-i-s.com to join the growing community of empowered women who are dedicated to creating the true wealth they deserve. 